0: Welcome to this episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast with your host, Brad Johnson. Brad's the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel, the largest independent insurance brokerage company in the US. He's also a regular contributor to Investment News, The Wall Street Journal, and other industry publications.
1: Hey guys, this episode's brought to you by BombBomb.com. You may have never heard of them, but here's what they do in fact I've been using them in my business for well over a year couldn't survive without them. so they take delivering a video in your clients or prospects inbox and they make it super seamless and easy in the past if I wanted to shoot a video share an idea concept with my clients I'd have to go to YouTube upload it copy and paste a picture in my email link it it was just a ton of work therefore I just flat out didn't do it now what BombBomb does it makes it easy in fact, I'm doing this video right now on their service. Once I'm done, I will hit save. It will upload seamlessly on their website. Then I just pull up my clients or prospects that I want to send it out to. I select the list. I type a subject line, put a little something in the body of the email, hit send. It's in my clients and prospects inboxes within a matter of minutes. Even better, think about your inbox. It's crazy, right? It's chaos trying to keep up with that thing. Well. Imagine if now your prospects or clients, they see your smiling face, they just see a play button, they hit it, they can now listen and watch whatever ideas you have to share with them in real time as far as face-to-face interaction as far as they're concerned, most importantly on their calendar, not on yours, and it's not all the work of having to read an email that's three pages long, so guess what, it just flat out doesn't get read. So here's what to do if you want to check out this service. My buddy Connor over at Bomb Bomb, he's put together a special offer for you guys. So it's bomb bomb, as in it blows up, bombomb.com forward slash Brad. Go out there for a two week free trial to check it out. He's put that together for all the Elite Advisor Blueprint listeners. And by the way, they put their money where their mouth is. So if you don't like the service after the two weeks, you sign up, you pay for it. They have a 30 day money back guarantee as well. So once again, bombbomb.com forward slash Brad. Go check the service out. I guarantee you'll love it. Welcome everyone. My name is Brad Johnson and I'm the VP of Advisor Development at Advisors Excel. In each episode of the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast, it's my goal to distill the best ideas and advice from top thought leaders and apply it to the world of independent financial advising. In this episode, I'm excited to have our first guest in the financial technology space, Aaron Klein. He's the CEO of Riskalize and as the company's co-founder, he's twice led the company to being named one of the world's top 10 most innovative companies in finance by Fast Company magazine. He's also responsible for helping grow the three-employee startup into a company that employs over 100 just 5 years later. Riskalize currently serves thousands of advisors who manage over 139 billion with a B on their platform. We cover a ton in this conversation. Here are just a few of the highlights. First, how can advisors avoid constantly facing the pressure of underperforming portfolios? I know you've all had these conversations. That client that walks in upset because the S&P 500 did 15% last year and your portfolio only returned 10%. Aaron has a solution. Next, what is the one thing Aaron sees in the world of robo advising that will always differentiate great advisors? In fact, he sees this as the biggest opportunity in the next five to 10 years in the financial advisory space. Finally, how do you scale a company from three employees to hundred plus in just five years? Aaron walks through his philosophy for building a successful team, as well as the one book he credits with much of how he successfully built risk from the ground up. One final note, for those of you listening to this via podcast, This was originally a live video call with my clients where Aaron and his team at Riskalyze offered a free gift. In fact, an incredibly timely free gift. No need to panic, a roadmap to the DOL's final fiduciary rule and how technology can bridge the gap. He's agreed to extend the offer to our podcast listeners as well. You can download it at BradleyJohnson.com forward slash Aaron Klein, along with all the show notes, complete with links to all the resources, books, and everything else discussed today. As always, thanks for listening and without further delay, my conversation with Aaron Klein. Welcome Aaron, officially to the Elite Advisor Blueprint Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Excited to be here with you. Awesome, so this is gonna be a lot of fun today. Uh, For those of you unfamiliar that are tuning in, either watching or listening, Aaron Klein is the CEO of Riskalyze, as well as co-founder there. Uh, Some incredibly cool software. We're going to dig into more about what it does and why financial advisors all around the country utilize it in their planning process. But uh, one of the quotes I heard in one of your interviews that I'll I'll just use to describe it, Aaron, and you can correct any of this that I get wrong. You said it's kind of like if you could Google your ideal investments that go into your portfolio that really match up with your risk profile. I don't know, do you remember even saying that? I I, I
0: sort of remember <laughs> saying that a long time ago. I haven't used that one recently, so you may have resurrected it.
1: That's a good one. Sometimes the <laughs> best ones you forget and have to come back to.
0: That's right, that's right. You know, I, I really, when we sort of started, we started from a standpoint of believing that um, individual investors, uh, have this, have this challenge that's rooted deeply in their psychology. Um, we tend to sabotage ourselves as investors and, and we do it because of fear. We react to risk in a short-term way. We make bad short-term decisions and those hurt our long-term financial goals. And uh, you know an example of what I'm talking about, I think it was Warren Buffett who said it best. Um, you know, stocks are the only thing that the American consumer refuses to buy when they're at their cheapest, and only wants to buy when they're at their most expensive, right? Okay. So, when the markets are up, we we feel optimistic and excited. We want to put more into this. We want to contribute more money to our accounts. We want to we want to get you know more invested, if that makes sense. Um, when the markets pull back we start getting a lot more fearful. Um, And if they pull back enough, that's where a lot of investors, and of course, everybody's different on how much risk they can handle. uh, But when they pull back enough, that's where people get very fearful. They start making very bad short-term decisions. They sell uh, or they go to conservative or whatever they do. and, And they usually stay there until the markets feel safe again, which means that the recovery has already happened. And then they're buying back in or going aggressive at the top. And um, that's just really disastrous for investors over the long run. Uh, So our belief was uh, we, we invented this thing called the risk number, the idea that we can pinpoint how much risk somebody can handle in a quantitative, objective way. And then the advisor can use that uh, to really build a portfolio that is aligned with that investor and allow turn that investor from a fearful investor into a fearless investor. And and when they become when, when they become a fearless investor, then yeah, it's a little bit like Googling the investments that fit them. Uh, and 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 they've got a portfolio that they can stay with for the long term. And that's not only, yeah, it, it it is good for the advisor, but it's really great for the investor and their success as well.
1: All right, Aaron. So um I like to call myself a Riskalyze rookie because I'm just I'm just really getting familiar with it. And I know uh, one of the reasons that Advisors Excel, we have a, a wealth platform. And one of the reasons Riskalyze is a big part of that is some of the biggest frustrations that I see as far as financial advisors is, you know it's not the consumer side, like, like really your software is addressing. It's more on the advisor side where they build this beautiful portfolio, yeah. right? They build this beautiful plan. And then a year later, their portfolio has performed at ten percent, and the S and P 500s performed at twelve <laughs> percent. Right? right, right. And so everybody benchmarks. It seems like the S and P 500s the typical benchmark in our industry. Right. You, you There's have-
0: only one time when when clients don't benchmark against the S and P 500. That's when it's losing money. Right. This is true. When the S and P 500 is losing money. That's not the client benchmark anymore. Right, the the clients are, are saying are saying, well, I, I I'm I'm, it, we're we're losing money. What's the problem? <laughs> you know, so uh, they, they they don't seem to compare it quite as closely uh, when the right. markets are down. Right, but you're right. When markets are up, um, the S and P five hundred typically is the benchmark, and. Um, that's that's been a big part of the discussion as well. Uh, you know, one of the things that we set up with Briskalize is at one of the key analytics is you know a portfolio will have a risk number and will have a ninety five percent probability range. And so we really train the advisor um, to not succumb to the uh, the temptation to put to talk about the return of the portfolio. Right, because a, a very typical uh, a thing an advisor will say: the advisor is trying to focus the client on the long term. The client is pushing back and going, "But what can I expect out of this portfolio? Right? Like, what, what, um, uh, what, what should my expectations be?" And they sort of pound, pound, pound. And finally, the advisor capitulates and says something like, "Well, over the long run, this portfolio should average eight percent a year." And of course, you know, the client didn't hear any of that except for eight percent right? Like that's the only thing I heard. So, if the market is down or below average,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, they're they're going to say, well, why didn't we make 8%? And if the market is above average, um, by the way, the one thing the market almost never hits is its own average, right? But if the market's above average, then they're going, why aren't we beating the market? Why is the market beating my portfolio, Brad? Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a tough question to answer sometimes because you're thinking, like, why am I benchmarking this portfolio against the index. And so, one of the really key features that we've been able to help advisors um, uh, leverage is what we call stress testing where they can can say, so, look, your portfolio is a 45 on the risk number scale from 1 to 99. The S&P 500 index is an 80. So, yeah, take a look at like 2013 and take a look at 2008. In 2013, you would have made a lot less money with your 45 than the S&P 500, which is an 80. But in 2008, you're also going to lose a lot less money with a 45 than with an 80. And, and, you know, the risk number is sort of shaped like a speed limit sign. So that really helps the, the client grasp the idea. Um, you know, I, I, a lot of, of, of advisors will say, I can give you an 80. In fact, I can give you a better 80 than mm-hmm. the S&P 500 index. Okay. But you told me you wanted to be a 45. And of course, the client then understands the, the balance of risk versus reward and is able to say, no, 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 no I don't want to be an 80. Uh, there's a reason I wanted to be a 45.
1: And that that's what I love. It's the clarity of we're not chasing some fictional number. This is your number that yep. you essentially took a test that said, here's where I want to be. Yep. And it's really, uh, it's holding them accountable as well. You know, yep.
0: and, I, and I think that it, it gets to encapsulate also um, the advisor leading the client to the right decision. We, we mm-hmm. talk a lot about that in our training because, you know, the other thing that a lot of advisors say, well, gosh, my client, you know, came in, they're 58 years old, they had never saved, and they want to retire in seven years. And their risk number comes back, and they're a 33. Okay. Well, that number probably isn't going to work for them right like i that right. that, that math ain't going to compute and so um, and it doesn't matter whether you're in california or kansas it's just not going to compute and so you know they uh, they will there's sort of the con- the risk number will be when we capture the risk number for the client that's how much risk the client wants well one of the big jobs of an advisor is to say well how much risk does the client need to reach their goal and they're able to use Riskalyze to answer that question as well, be able to say, well, for this client to reach their goal, they're going to have to invest more like a 65. Mm-hmm. And now we've got a great conversation to have with the client because we can demonstrate to them what you know the kind of downside risk that would be normal for a 65 portfolio as compared to a 33 portfolio. Right, and we can demonstrate the difference there and say, look, if, if you can't get comfortable with the amount of downside risk that's in a sixty-five portfolio, well, then for crying out loud, we need to change your goals. You're going to have to retire later, or save more. Um, you know, you're going to have to do something else other than the goals that you that you've laid out here, uh, because we're not we're not going to make it. Um, I, you know, if we invest you like a 33. And so, that allows the advisor to have sort of, we, we like to call it the come to Jesus meeting, right? Because, mm-hmm. uh, And it's better to have that meeting then than to have it three or four years later when you're trying to explain to the client they're nervous, they want to sell because the market has taken a dip and they're invested like a 65 when they feel like a 33. Right? You want to have that conversation early while their psychology is in a good place so that when the market does dip, you can say, now, wait a minute, we agreed you weren't going to sell out of this portfolio over fear because this is a normal kind of loss for this portfolio. Mm-hmm. And, and that really helps the, the investor to stay invested for the long run.
1: So, so that's, to me, that's the first half of the story. But then the other cool part with Riskalyze is the fact that now on the back end, Yep. you've pulled in all of these data feeds that essentially show you here is the S&P 500's risk number, right? Or here yep. is the this mutual fund, this uh, bonds as well, correct? Right,
0: absolutely. So yeah. you can plug... Uh, we've got about a quarter of a million investment choices in Riskalyze. There are great ways that you can pull bonds in and, and, and look at them in the context of what type of bond they are. We're actually in the middle of rolling out uh, an upgrade to bonds in the near future that's going to add a bunch of individual bond coverage as well. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, every U.S. stock ETF mutual fund, 130,000 variable annuity sub-accounts, if you're seeing those walk through the door with a prospective client, need to figure out that risk, um, 10,000 SMA third-party money managers. On the platform, a variety of non-traded proprietary strategies from different asset managers. So, uh, pretty much, if an advisor needs to figure out the risk of a portfolio, they're going to have those options available to figure that out. Uh, and then, you know, that 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 technology gets used both for building the new portfolio, but also for analyzing the existing portfolio because that's mm-hmm. a big piece, especially when it comes to client acquisition.
1: What about cash under the mattress? How do you guys pull that? Yeah. In?
0: Well, I, there, there's there's nothing to say that you can't create another account in a risk alized portfolio, and and put 100% of that account in cash and show its impact on the portfolio. Really? Very cool. Absolutely. And so, will it show you know, the
1: risk, inflation risk, and uh, and all of that that's built into it?
0: We build that into the retirement maps aspect that shows it over time, so that mm-hmm. you can demonstrate. Um, you know, I, I we had one advisor who said, I, I I've always had this client who was just stressed out about you know, the risk of the bond market going down because he was, you know, interest rates skyrocketing For sure. um, and the risk of massive inflation. He just believed that both of those things were going to happen. Um, and I don't know if he was worried that Trump was going to get elected or what the deal was, but he, you know, or, or, or maybe it was the other way around, who knows, but he was worried about those things, those kinds of things happening. And so, you know, what really calmed him down is uh, this advisor said, I just plugged in like an insane... Amount of interest rate increase in the model, and then I, I plugged in an insane amount of inflation increase in the model, and he still was at an eighty percent likelihood of success to reach his retirement goal, and that gave him a lot of comfort that you know he's going to get there, he's going to be okay.
1: Cool. All right, so I'm just going to throw you the first curveball. Usually okay. I, I pull these yeah. out somewhere along. So sounds good. So it'll be in the technology and the financial vein. So you should be you should be good there. Um okay. what Is What's one thing in finance and technology or fintech as you guys like to call it, right? Uh that advisors just flat out don't see coming. So five years from now, 10 years from now, where where's the as Wayne Gretzky says, you know, where's the puck going? Yeah. Uh, thoughts there.
0: That's a great question. And and I think, I think ultimately, um, Advisors have for a long time felt like their value came from designing the pie chart. From design, deciding how that exactly how that client's portfolio is going to get allocated, um, even at a very basic level. Obviously, there's lots of unique situations that clients may be in where the advisor needs to, you know, can actually uh, create some value by putting that expertise to work. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of situations where a client has a relatively simple, straightforward life, and you know they they need a portfolio that that is compatible with them along the risk number curve. Okay, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, a lot of advisors are beginning to realize my value does not come from some unique way that I create that pie chart. I am never going to be able to somehow uh, consistently beat the market. That's, that's not my goal as an advisor. That's not what I'm trying to, to offer my clients. My job as an advisor is to be and where I, where I really drive value for my clients is being a behavioral coach, right? Mm-hmm. helping them make the right kinds of decisions. Helping them get their assets titled correctly, helping them think through when it's time to do a trust, helping them think through when I should buy, when I should lease, helping them think through all the you know being that financial consigliere Mm -hmm. that just helps them make the right decisions at the right time, and and so you know if I were to guess uh, where where financial technology is five years from now, I think that there's way more advisors. Uh, who uh, work with a bigger wealth management organization to do a lot of that commoditized stuff at scale, mm-hmm. right? We, we, we don't need the billionth and and, and, and first uh, a new way to design a 60-40 portfolio, uh, you know? So, there, there's, right. there's ways that we can get scale out of that by working with a bigger wealth management organization to do that and advisors are gonna focus their services where they really add value. Everywhere from behavioral coaching to financial planning to tax assistance, you know, and just being that all in financial concierge who who helps their clients with their financial life planning.
1: So what I'm hearing you say is kind of more that family office type approach where we're, integra- we're integrating tax planning, we're integrating estate planning, we're integrating how we manage your portfolio.
0: Yeah. I think that's that, those are the places that an advisor is going. And, and, and I, I don't want to understate how important the behavioral coaching aspect is. Mm-hmm. Probably, you know, if, if an advisor, you know, makes X dollars, I would argue 80% of those dollars should be allocated to the idea of, I'm going to help you make the right short-term decisions and encourage you to make the right short-term decisions when uh, things get tough. Because guess what? It's really easy. Really easy um, to be invested when the markets are going up and to the right, right? I mean, like, we, sure. we, could all, we could all just, if that's how easy it was, we could all just jump on, you know, Wealthfront and Betterment, these other self directed robos that claim to be advisors, but they are not actually advisors, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, th- those, those firms cannot help clients figure out how to make the right short term decisions. Uh, in times of stress. They can't help clients figure out complex situations. And, you know, for sure, uh, one thing that's a really good signal, you know, at some point, maybe the robots will become sentient and and then we could actually have a real robo-advisor that exists, right? But I have yet to see a robo-advisor tell a client, you know what, you actually shouldn't invest this money. You've got $100,000 in student loans at a high interest rate. You should be paying those down. Okay. Um, I know at at your level of of comfort with risk, frankly, you should have a cash reserve of this much before you invest. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are the kinds of questions, those are the kinds of answers that an advisor will give. I've yet to see a robot, um, any of the robots that exist today uh, deliver that kind of advice.
1: Although you did just give me an idea. You take Arnold Schwarzenegger out of Terminator 2. and he can help you make some some wise financial decisions, right? There you um, go. So he'll
0: certainly be back. You know, <laughs> that's,
1: that's and sure. he's been back multiple times. <laughs> so, um, it's interesting because I was talking to a friend about Betterment, and obviously, from a cost perspective, you know, that's kind of their value proposition: yep. just take the fees as low as possible. But I was telling him, I said, the biggest risk in that model is you can't, you have no one to protect you from yourself. You don't have that voice of reason that says it's 2009. Don't pull all your money out of the market, right? Yep. yep. And, and,
0: uh, and I have to say, I'm a little bit of a contrarian, probably a little bit controversial when it comes to Betterment and Wealthfront. But I actually don't believe the conventional wisdom is that Betterment and Wealthfront are cheap. That they're that they're really you know they've they pushed fees down and they're really mm-hmm. affordable. So. The thing is is that Wealthfront and 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 Betterment and these kinds of self-directed advisor products they're really just a next generation e-trade account with a new coat of paint. And and it's fascinating because somehow they've convinced the market that they can provide self-directed investing services like a discount brokerage account at 995 a trade but they can charge 25 basis points an advisory kind of fee and they can still get called cheap. I, I the the reality is I think that is like the most expensive way to be a self-directed investor ever hmm. what what you're supposed to be paying for in an advisory fee is advice you're supposed to be paying as you said for protecting you from yourself and making the bad short-term decisions during times of stress that are that are out of alignment you know because your portfolio is probably out of alignment with what you can handle risk wise
1: right yeah it's um that's an interesting way to look at it. I like <laughs> that because you think about it, it's like, you know, where did e trade started at fourteen ninety-five, I think. Yep. It was nine ninety five. And then I remember Trade King came out and I was really yes. excited because it was four ninety-five. Yes. And now Robinhood essentially yes. no free. Fee. Yep. And because yeah.
0: money is not important to them. So, you know, I, I. <laughs>
1: they named their company well. And yes. Into, indeed. Uh, but that's interesting because if you look at it as, as another version of E-Trade right now, it becomes incredibly expensive. It's not a one-time fee. It's a reoccurring fee.
0: Right. Because, you know, what they're doing is they're bundling together a series of transactions for you to do. Whereas Mm E-Trade, you would have to go in and enter each of those ETFs you want to buy, right? Mm -hmm. And then you'd have to go in and you would definitely have to do the work of like selling your winners and buying more of your losers and rebalancing, you know, your account to fit that portfolio. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. there's no doubt that there's some automation that they've done there. But the reality is you're still a self-directed investor. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's it's got to be the most expensive way ever to to be a self directed investor uh, to pay an advice fee and not get any advice.
1: I like it. I like that angle. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you stop and think. Absolutely. All right. So, um, all right, we got a few questions here. I want to throw I want to throw another one at you. So, okay. this, obviously, this podcast is for financial advisors. Yeah. Um, Something that I was thinking about. So you started uh, Riskalyze in 2011. Is that right? That's correct. And how many employees when you guys were just straight out of the gates?
0: Three. three. Started with three. It was okay. me and two engineers. Nice. Yep.
1: Sounds like an amazing time.
0: It was an amazing time, and and uh, you know it was um, it was it was a simpler time. That's for yep. sure. Uh, but it was an amazing time. The three of us worked out of our homes for the first, you know, year and a half or so. Um, and we were, I mean, boy, we fought bad internet connections and everything else. But we would just sort of camp out in my home office and, 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 and work on product and work on core technology. Um, we actually had a very different strategy when we started. Um, we didn't believe that great advisors would road test brand new risk technology on their clients at least the great advisors that we really, you know, wanted to have as, as customers one day. And so, we said, oh gosh, we'll probably get to serving advisors in like 2015, some far-off year like 2015, um, you know, because this was 2011. Right. And um, and we said, we're going to we're gonna focus on consumers at first. We're going to focus on these guys who are putting 25K into an E-Trade account. Mm. Um, and so, we built out all the core technology, built this free product for the web that helped that kind of investor come in figure out the risk number, figure out how to, you know, rebalance their, their E-Trade account or, or, or whatever kind of uh, brokerage account they had into uh, something that fit their risk number. And so, our, our, you know, that was that we sort of launched that product tail end of 2011, early 2012. And that was our year of successful failure. Like uh, the success part was, we got great PR, Barrons, New York Times, NPR. We had users come in and build two billion dollars in portfolios on the product. That was after we took all the billion dollar portfolios out because we were pretty sure Warren Buffett wasn't using our website. Um, you know, and so so you know, average account size twenty seven thousand dollars. These are the E Trade guys, right? And they're loving the product. They're in there doing. You know, so it was really resonating with consumers. Um, the The failure part of that year was monetization. We were we were trying to partner and build this technology into the websites of, you know, or the website of one of the, the five big discount brokers. That was sort right. of the plan uh, because, you know, I, I think this is uh, pretty close to an average number across all of their businesses, but those discount brokers have a really interesting problem. Uh, 93% of their funded accounts haven't executed a trade in the last year. Hmm. This is not buy and hold. This is buy and ignore. Like I have no idea what to do as an investor. And so, you know, our pitch to them was we could actually turn these fearful, frozen, I don't know what to do investors into fearless, um, uh, intelligent, I do know what to do investors Mm -hmm. with this kind of technology. Uh, And if we could reactivate, you know, 10% of their dormant accounts, that would be pretty huge for them. But mm-hmm. uh, The challenge is, is, that we were we were whale hunting, and there were only five whales in our ocean. And so, you know, w- w- without naming names and being specific, you know, some of them just don't like to work with outside partners. Others of them just, you know, had had all kinds of difficulties trying to make a deal work. Wanted to, couldn't make it work. We actually got the deal with one of them, uh, but their website technology was so antiquated. that They were like, "It's going to be four to six quarters before we can even get started on this project." So, you know, this, this is, is
1: an online broker. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. You know,
0: this is a this is Labor Day, 2012, and and we had about three months of cash in the bank at that point in time. So, um, I was thinking that we were hitting the brick wall at that point, but uh, came back uh, from that meeting uh got the team together on Labor Day weekend 2012 and we just said, you know, let's take a last ditch effort and see if we can't leverage, you know, rebuild the product for advisors. And mm-hmm. the one thing we have on the ship that's good, the, the old Apollo 13 line, what do we have on the ship that's good, right? Um, the one thing we have on the ship that's good is the two billion dollars of of risk model validation that, that our users have given us? Mm-hmm. So why don't we take that to the advisor market and, and and see if that makes sense? And it was still a lot of smoke and no fire for the next six months after that. But in March or April of 2013, we came out of beta and just came roaring out of beta, and, and we haven't looked back since. It's uh, it's been amazing, amazing growth as we've watched thousands of advisors come onto platform. And um, you know, we had four people in the company uh, uh, in April. March, April, 2013. Uh, we ended wow. the year with 10 uh, and we ended the next year with 25. And then, uh, you know, today it's at about a hundred people in the company.
1: All right. So I've got two questions I have to ask for, yeah. for, for a follow-up there. Uh, first one is just, I was thinking this as you were explaining it, all you did, now I've worked with financial advisors for close to a decade and it's amazing. Everybody has their Simplified way of talking through risk reward with clients, yep. right? And essentially, what you did was you created a smart rule of a hundred, right? Yep. You you took the rule of a hundred, and I'm sure everybody on the call knows that. Um, but then you made it smart, and then you pulled in all the data on the back end to sure. validate their rule, right? So yep. just. It's it's very cool to me how you took something that the financial services space has probably been using since at the beginning of its existence, and then you just you bridge this gap, which is every good startup. You you find this really big problem that nobody's solving, right? And you go attack it. And yep, it, I just love how you took a simple idea and you made it very easy for an advisor to communicate it to a client or a prospect.
0: Well, one of the things that we that we thought of through that vein is you know I just I looked at. Um, Uh, You looked at how self-directed investors were doing it and you said, basically, they're just doing it in a vacuum. They don't know what they're doing. Well, advisors are a little bit more knowledgeable than that. So then we started looking at how advisors were doing it. And the typical approach was, you know, a paper-based questionnaire. We're sort of starting with what is this investor's stereotypical risk capacity? Okay. If they're young, they're probably aggressive. If they're old, they're probably conservative. And then we ask them some different questions, and the questions are really fascinating because they're not actually risk tolerance questions in any way, shape, or form. They're market sentiment questions, so questions like, do you get a thrill out of investing? Well, I'll tell you what, I got a far greater thrill in 2013 than I got in 2008. Okay. Sure. So, and then we nudge the, 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 the stereotype about that client one way or the other, and we call that risk tolerance. But, you know, it turns out our industry has sort of trained us to answer the right question with the wrong, um, uh, you know, with the wrong answer. And so, uh, I, I think we sort of looked at that and said, there's an opportunity here um, you know, today it's as if a contractor and an architect are sitting down with each other and saying, "So, what the client really wants is a moderately conservative hallway leading to his moderately aggressive bedroom." And you know, if that's how they did things when building a house, that house would never come together. They'd never, they'd never be able to make it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we like to think that we're putting the feet in inches. Um, you know that rule of one hundred that you're talking about. We we really feel like we're putting the feet and in inches into this process of aligning clients with their with their portfolios and their expectations.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I I completely agree. It just it hit me. It's like they just took a, the most simple rule in financial services and just made it smart. Um, Try to put so some okay. intelligence into it. Yep. Yeah. So okay. So I want to ask a follow up question because many of the advisors, especially once you have some success, your yep. biggest issue is how do you build a great team? And yes. so since we've gone from April of 2013, or we, well, I say we, because you know, I'm part of the Risk family. We're talking family. about it, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So so Risk Riskalyze has gone from four employees in April 2013 to over a hundred, that's incredibly quick yep. growth. So yep. can you share, I'm gonna ask a few questions here, take this whichever direction you want. Sure. Um, how do you scale that quickly successfully? Yeah. Uh, what lessons have you learned? What's been your biggest mistake? Just thoughts around that growth and, sure. and how you've been able to do it.
0: Sure, um, that's a that's a
1: multifaceted
0: question. So I, I I've got a few different things that I can that I can probably throw out there. Um, I probably the most important thing is that um, we were we were self-aware enough to know that that was going to be a challenge early on. It was probably about June or July of 2013 that I sat down with my co-founder and I said, okay, you know this is like all of a sudden it's like a rocket ship and we're strapped to the side of it. Um, and it's pretty clear that we're that we're growing well and there might be a real business here. So now we have to think about actually building a company, right, right. Up until now we've been a startup and we've been trying to build a product. That people would love. And and we seem to have sort of hit that and bottled magic in some way, you know, even greater than we could ever expect. And Mm -hmm. so now we actually have to think about building a company around this product and this, you know, sort of growing movement that we somehow attached ourselves to. Um, Because it really felt a lot bigger than ourselves um, in those days of 2013. I I would say it still does. Um, So, so we, we, one of the things we did, I, I was thinking about it. I said, you know, we've, we sort of struggled if you think about it, right? Like 2011 was a tough year. The, the core tech took us a lot longer than we thought. 2012 was a tough year. You know, we were successful on a number of fronts, but we really failed on some other fronts with the monetization strategy. So I think when startups struggle, uh, if they ever come out of it, uh, they often have this motley collection of b and c players that they've sort of patched onto the team along the way mm-hmm. uh, and and then they they've got to figure out how to build a company around that and so uh, you know here it is june july of 2013 we've got about six people in the company at that point in time and you know i looked at mike my co-founder and i said you know here's the thing we've got all a players like somehow we've gotten fortunate we've got all a players in the company so actually our job, our number one job, is just to not screw this up from here. Um, and so, so we 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 took some. Uh, we you know we had we had stuck to the same mission the entire time uh, since we'd started the company. Uh, we took our core values that we had pretty much stuck to the whole time. We we gave a little bit of a refresh, really just sort of rearticulated what we meant by them. Um, but then we just sort of put together some training around that, and we decided. Even before we had great training for new people coming aboard on sort of how to do their job, that we were going to have incredible training about what this company was about, where we're going, and how we're going to get there. And, and that's our mission and values training. I actually taught it yesterday because I still teach it to every single risk who comes aboard. We do them in classes now, um, you know, so there were 14 new risk uh, you know, in, in, in yesterday's training. But, um, you know, I'm sitting there going through helping them understand the mission that the company is on, right, why, why we exist, what we do for our customers, um, but more importantly, how we're going to work together, and um, and we set out to build a company with the kind of foundation like some of our core values. I, a lot of times, you see core values on the wall, right? But the company doesn't actually live by them. So we, mm-hmm. our big litmus test was, we're, we're going to have core values that the company actually lives by day by day. So, um, you know, they are they are things like. Um, communication, having using open and direct communication uh, to save time and solve problems quickly. Uh, that is a tough one for a lot of new people who come aboard. Uh, if you came, if we hired you out of a company that had a blame-based culture, you're going to struggle coming to a high feedback culture because for the first few months you're going to sit there thinking that everybody doesn't like you, but the reality is if you're doing important work at Riskalyze, you're getting feedback all the time. We're a high mm-hmm. feedback culture, and we use very open and direct communication. We don't tiptoe around issues, and we don't we we just don't do ego around communication because that just wastes time. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, conflict,
1: conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing.
0: Conflict isn't a bad thing, right? Yeah. Conflict about ideas. Interpersonal conflict, um, we push people to use open, direct communication to solve that as well in a really transparent way, uh, but boy, conflict over ideas is a good thing and that's something mm-hmm. that, that, that helps the company move forward. We also do a lot around accountability, teamwork, and ownership um, and, and we talk about ownership particularly. We, we want everybody to own. Uh, the the part of the company that they run, and think about their job in terms of inputs and outputs. So you know pr- you know the the entry level team that we have literally thinks about their job as owning a set of outputs. And I make the point that way. If if there's something going wrong in the area of the company that you own, you're able to ra- you know to sound the alarm early on. Because guess what? I can't. I don't have day to day visibility in what you do anymore. So mm-hmm. I can't raise the alarm and say there's something wrong here. I used to be able to do that when there were four people in the company, five people in the company, right? It was easy for us to know what was going on and to stay aligned because we just say, hey, everybody, and we walk into the middle of the room and we talk. Well, it's mm-hmm. a lot more complex of an, of an organism now. And so I, I think just setting those kinds of, of core values into place of how we're going to work together. Um, choosing to, to be a place where open and direct communication is how you work. Um, I think that has been a big part of, of why we've uh, grown the way that we've grown and been able to scale the organization because, you know, I, I had one person tell me um, in, in the latter part of 2013, this is a really weird organization, I'm like, really, tell me tell me more. Nice. And, and, and he, said, ah. he said, well, you know what, I, I've, I've joined a lot of companies before. I've always gotten really great training on how to do my job. Here, it's like you pushed me in the deep end of the pool and said, I really hope you know how to swim, okay? Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, I've never felt more connected to where the company was going and how it was going to get there. I understand what mission we're on, and I understand how we're going to work together to accomplish the mission. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I can be a million times more effective in what I'm doing. And I, for me, that just spoke volumes because that's what we were trying to put in place to help us scale an organization.
1: That's awesome. So Aaron, do you have any books or other resources that have helped you down that path that's led you to how you lead the team now? Absolutely.
0: So, my favorite, like my hero and my favorite business book bar none is The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Um, or maybe it's the hard things about hard thing. I, I I don't remember. Hard no, it's the hard thing about hard things. That's what it is by Ben Horowitz, um, who is you know one one half of the uh, Mark Andreessen Ben Horowitz investing partnership. It's a venture capital fund in Silicon Valley, and uh, you know Ben is really interesting because he is not your typical venture capitalist. He was CEO of of uh, a company that started out. Uh, being called LoudCloud, uh, eventually transformed into a company called Opsware, um, and the story is an incredible story. But basically, he wrote the book because he said every management book that is out there is written about successful companies, and mm-hmm. you know the problem is is that they they really mess up causation and correlation. You know, so for example, they'll go out there and they'll say, um, you know, I, he 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 tends himself to pick on Jim Collins with good to great, right? Because right. he'll say, well, look, you know, you got to have a big, hairy, audacious goal. Uh, that's what great companies have. And then, you know, you set a big, hairy, audacious goal. If you don't meet your big, hairy, audacious goal, you know, the Jim Collins athletes will say, well, I guess you're not a great company, you know. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know,
1: I guess I, we're just good.
0: Yeah, we're just we're just good. So you know, Ben Horowitz would would just say, he said, nobody was writing a management book. Nobody was writing about how to lead a company when things are hard. And the reality is building a company is one of the hardest things that you'll ever do. and it's it's not checkers it's it's like playing three-dimensional chess blindfolded that that's mm-hmm. that's sort of my perspective um, and so it, it's one of the hardest things you'll ever do and understanding the perspectives of how things work when things are not working well I think has probably been the thing that has helped me the most because gosh there's been a lot of moments along the way even though we've had lots of great growth and our growth has been really strong um, there have been tons of moments along the way that were extremely challenging and the the, the work of building a company is unnatural. Um, that's one of the other things I had to learn from, from you know, some of the stuff that Ben teaches because um, he says, you know, can, if you can just imagine, um, you know, you asked me an interview question and I, instead of answering the question, I just say, you know, Brad, uh, the way you asked that question... Uh, I, I just, your, your ideas weren't organized very well. Why don't you just go back, work on that a little bit, come back to me and, and, and try that question again tomorrow. <laughs> like, that's the kind of stuff you have to do as a CEO when you're building a company. You have to give that kind of feedback to people. And it's very unnatural, right? Because mm-hmm. we're, we're wired as human beings to, to want people to like us. Um, that that probably comes in back from the caveman days a long time ago. Um, you know, Ben likes to say that for, it comes from the caveman days because you you certainly if, if they didn't like you, they'd eat you. So you, you 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 know it's sort of wired into us to want other people to like us. Uh, and so I, I, I boy, I think that's so true. And it's it's a very unnatural job to build a company and, and lead that process. And so that's been a big. Uh, you know, learning experience for me. And that's probably been the number one. I love that book. And I I, I reread it all the time because huh. it's that helpful for perspective.
1: Thanks for sharing that. I've, I've heard of it. I have not read it. Um, it's, so it's fascinating. I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Uh, yeah. Your comments made me think of a book I'm actually just finishing. Uh, yep the five dysfunctions of team by patrick, patrick lencioni
0: yes. patrick lencioni one of my favorites great guy and you know and 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 i would i would summarize if you can summarize somebody's career in a sentence his career is all about like organizational health right mm-hmm. and it's it's a lot of um, uh, it's it's just a lot of true stuff about how organizations have to be healthy to be able to function. And yeah, I, I, I absolutely love that book. And I'll tell you a funny story. In an organization that I worked in before, that was very much a dysfunctional organization. Okay, mm-hmm. um, Early on in my tenure at that organization, I saw all these dysfunctions and I said, oh, my gosh, this is like right out of this book. <laughs> And um, it, it was a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because like I took the book in and I was photocopying a couple of the pages of it for my boss because I wanted her to read the book. And I was going to give her the book but I just wanted to whet her appetite with a couple of pages of the book, right? Mm-hmm. So, I'm photocopying this and she comes around the corner and sees me doing this. And, and I tell her what I'm doing and she looks at the book, she goes, you can't be seen photocopying a book that says the five dysfunctions of a team." In this office, like yeah, I mean, it was like it was like right out of the book. It was so meta; it was just unbelievable, right? I'm just
1: like, <laughs> imagine what people. That, that was your sign that We're this, might, awesome. not, yes. this <laughs> might not. Yes. be the right spot for me. Right? <laughs> yeah. you know, it was, which, I'll tell you yeah. what I and that's the first uh, that's the first book by Patrick that I've read. I'm not even going to try his last name; I'll butcher it. But um, what I like is how he takes this business philosophy, but he puts it in story. Yes. And it's it's so easy to read. It's just like you're yes. reading fiction. So yes, it's, it's been a great read. That's great.
0: Yeah, and and what you'll find with Ben's book is that he he uh, he does a similar thing and puts it all into story. The uh, the bonus is that all those stories are true, yeah. and so it, 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 it's fascinating because there's a lot of similarity in both the ideas and the writing there, and and they're both really really great individuals.
1: Cool. I'll check. Uh, I'll check the hard thing about hard things out. Yeah. Um, Okay, so what two questions on this um you said early on you had all a players, yeah, what have you found going from four to one hundred have do you have tools do you have systems? do you have third party services that you use that allows you to keep uncovering a players what Absolutely. How, how do you approach that
0: um You know, we we don't have a perfect batting average on that by any stretch of the imagination, but we have a really good batting average. I would venture to bet, um, I I sort of do this little game at Mission and Values, Um, I ask people to read off their employee number off their badges, and uh, at this point, the highest employee number um, tells us that we've done about 170 hires. In our history, um, now we have you know, we have one particular team that sort of inflates that because it's an entry level team with a lot of college um, you know students that come aboard and work on that team. So that inflates the number a little bit um, because it's designed to be a short term job, and so so they they go back to school and things like that. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, out of 170 hires, we have maybe asked eight or nine people to leave the company um, o- o- over that course of time, and so. Um, that's to me. That's a signal that um, you know. First of all, people when they get hired can feel pretty secure in their jobs because they know that we we selected them really carefully and that we're investing a lot in their success and that we're going to do everything within our power to make them successful before we, frankly, you know, write off that investment.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: But at at the same time, you know, how do we go through the process of trying to to hit that kind of high batting average? Um, I would say that, you know, I found that one of the net effects is that we tend to go through a lot more candidates per hire than a a typical company probably does. Um, We ask a lot of questions focused on how have you done X in the future? Or, I'm sorry, in the past in your career because mm-hmm. if you ask somebody, can you do X, I can guarantee you they're going to think that that's important to, to get the job and they're going to say yes right? Yeah. and maybe even add a little. If they're really good, they'll add some intelligent color that makes them sound like an expert at that. But if you ask them, how have you done X? At this company that's on your resume, and then you ask them uh, to, to tell you a story about that. Um, you know, I, it, it, I got to tell you, it's an amazing interview technique because it absolutely weeds out the people who have actually never done it and have just studied up on how to do it, mm-hmm. okay, uh, versus the people who have actually done it and have a track record. Because guess mm-hmm. what? All of those people. Um, they are are absolutely willing to tell you when there's a piece of the question you're asking about that they haven't done, okay? Because because they've got so much strength in their experiences that they feel confident enough to be able to say, and you know, I have not done that piece of the job before. That's going to be something I'm going to have to learn. Here's how I would think about that. And now right. they're sharing with you in a very transparent way, you know, what they know about process and what they've thought about that and what they've studied up about that. The other people who don't have a track record to speak of, okay, or have not been successful, frankly, at the things that they're claiming to be successful at, those people just talk process. So you say, tell me about a time that you did X, Y, and Z at this particular job on your resume, and they will literally respond to you with process, They'll just talk to, well, you know, what you do in that kind of situation is you would hire this kind of person and then, you know, you train them like this and then you do this. And it's like, well, I didn't ask you how you would do it. I asked you how you actually did that. Like, tell me the story of doing it at that company. Um, Of course, I don't ask that follow-up question because they've already given themselves away as somebody who doesn't have that relevant experience. Um, And so... I think that's a big piece of hiring A players. I, we're not looking for somebody who has absolutely perfect experience across every aspect of a job. Frankly, we usually can't afford those kinds of people. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they should probably work for IBM for $400,000 a year. Like, I, I, I can't afford that kind of person, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm looking for, um, and I think Mark Andreessen said this, and I, and I love it, I'm looking to hire people for their strengths, not their lack of weaknesses. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, that we, we've done that a number of times, and it's always served us really well. Um, to, to not look at, you know, I, I, one of the lines, I think it's in the book, actually, I keep going back to this, but I think it's in The Hard Thing About Hard Things between Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, and, and basically Andreessen didn't want to hire a particular candidate for a job, and Ben Horowitz, you know, and it was because, you know, gosh, yeah, he, he didn't go to a top tier school and you know he doesn't have this and he doesn't have that. And um and and Ben Horowitz says to him, Mark, if he had those three things that you're talking about, he'd be CEO of IBM. And and Mark and Juice goes, Okay, I got it, hire him. Okay? And so that's that's the that's the kind of thing that I think you've gotta you've gotta look at when you're trying to put together an A team, um, is is how what kind of strengths do you really, really need? And not get not not fall into the trap of 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 hiring for lack of weakness, but instead focus on hiring for strength.
1: All right. So, what's the biggest mistake you made building the team so far?
0: Biggest mistake building the team. Well, um, we have. I've I've certainly hired the wrong person before. I typically know it really quickly. Um, We try to be very generous with severance in those kinds of cases. Uh, It's happened very rarely, but it has happened a couple of times. Um, I would say, you know, the other big mistake that I made along the way, and again, we fixed this pretty quickly, I I, I would say that we created the opportunity for um, political behavior uh, because we wanted to be transparent and responsive to employees. And as the organization grew, it's not that transparency is not a good thing and it's not that responsiveness is not a good thing. But, you know, I'll give you a great example. Right now, it's something I train our managers on. As a policy, we will never match somebody's competing offer that they get from another company. We seek to, um, to pay all of our employees, all of our risk uh, at market level for the job they're in, for the skill set that they bring to that job, and you know, frankly, for our budget that we, can, that we can afford for that job, but we try to triangulate those three things and come up with a market level rate that we can pay that person for that job, and we sync that up for every risk once a year on December the 1st. Now, now why do we do it that way? Because, um, think about it this way, I want every risk to know that they do not have to engage in political behavior to be treated fairly when it comes to compensation. Mm-hmm. I would say that we, we didn't know that early on, we didn't think about that early on, so um, you know, if your squeaky wheels uh, are the ones that are always getting grease, right. um, get yourself ready for a lot of squeaky wheels. That's what's going to happen. So, we, we put this system in place and said... As a rule, if somebody comes in with a competing offer, if it's if if they don't love working here so much that they're willing to wait a couple of months and have that one year sync up of, of their value and worth to the market happen. Uh, once a year, they probably don't have a long-term enough perspective for us as an organization, and we need to be okay with that, with with, with them leaving the company. And so far, to my knowledge, we haven't had anybody leave the company overpay because they know we're going to treat them fairly. Number one, and number two, they know that uh, they don't have to go out and do uncomfortable political things. It's not who you know or who you're friends with or how well you curry favor with that person or whether you go out and get a competing offer. That doesn't you know, set your compensation. Uh, it, it, it's handled fairly in a, in a in a pretty transparent and clear way.
1: Hmm. I like that. Uh, you're there's hints of Steve jo- Steve Jobs in there with what he did early on with Apple, building the Mac team. It was more about the mission. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, being a tech guy, I'm assuming you've seen this. If you haven't, you have to watch it. Have you seen Steve Jobs' The Lost Interview?
0: Uh, The Lost Interview. I feel like I have. That's on YouTube, isn't it?
1: It was on Netflix.
0: Oh no, I have not seen this. Okay, I'm going to uh, check this out.
1: Yeah, well, I, I was just so originally you could stream it on Netflix, then they took it off. Then I went yeah. I was talking about it in another conversation I had, and so I was going to go out and buy the DVD cuz you okay. used to be able to get it on Amazon. Now uh-huh. it's on like 150 dollars because it's out of print apparently. Oh. So, I'll I'll find a way to find you one cuz I think there's one floating around, but I'll Okay, cool. There. But he awesome. He talks a lot about, and I want to bring this back to the interview. Um, he talks a lot about how he built the MAC team and how yeah. it was more about the mission and the team. And it's kind of like, you know, Kennedy says, we're, we're putting a man on the moon by the end of the decade. It right. Was about the mission and getting everybody pointed towards that common goal. Yep. And I see pieces of that with how you guys build and train the team. And hey, it's not about, XYZ company over here offering right. five grand or ten grand more a year. It's it's about what we're trying to do here together collectively. So right,
0: right, and I and you know I never want to ask people to um, I, I guess I'll say be charitable to their job right and and mm-hmm. work for for less than what they're worth. As much as we believe we believe in in focusing our people on mission, we believe in compensating them fairly. But I think that you know what's interesting is the belief in compensating people fairly has led a lot of companies. To create a system that is inherently unfair, which is you need to go get a competing offer, or you need to curry favor with someone in order to be compensated fairly, and that takes people's eyes off the mission, as you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's the most important thing. When you can get that out of the way and let people stay focused on the mission, they mm-hmm. will.
1: Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, so we're getting towards the end here, and yeah. as always, I have way more questions to ask than time for. No so um, I'll try and be faster. How about that? Okay. Yeah. Just speak. Okay. You, you grew up in the 80s, right? Sure. The, the micro-machines guy off the commercial. Just, <laughs> yeah, just go absolutely. into that mode and we'll be good. Okay. Um, okay, so what's your favorite advisor story from someone that's used Riskalyze and they yeah. said, this client got it? Or just tell me some of your favorite absolutely. stories utilizing that face-to-face with the client.
0: Favorite one, frankly, uh, was this guy who called his advisor and he said, you know, I love my current advisor. He's a great guy. Um, I, I, I love him to death. I play golf with him all the time, but I just feel nervous no matter what I say. Um, my portfolio seems to bounce around a lot. This was 2013. Markets are going like straight up, right? And he's like, my portfolio bounced around a lot. It makes me nervous. Uh, and, 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 and then he says, he says, I, I've got just two million dollars. I feel like I've got no margin for error. Um, and this advisor is getting sort of excited. Then he starts backpedaling and he goes. But you know what? I've been making tons of money recently, so I don't want to make any changes. He's going to wait till he loses the money, and then he's going to make the changes, right? right. Um, but the, he says, so "I just maybe I could just get to know you someday. Maybe I'll use multiple advisors." And so the advisor takes the meeting. They do the risk number. The guy's a 23. They analyze his portfolio. Turns out he's a, he's invested like a 68. Um, he's got so much downside risk. This guy's face turns white as a sheet. And he signs that form right there in the office that day. Two million dollar account like that. Um, that's the kind of story that we see the risk number creating for advisors over and over because you know it's it's not all about generating revenue, although it, it certainly has been a great client acquisition tool for them. It's about getting that client aligned with where they need to be and what their expectations are because that drives that turns a fear a fearful investor into a fearless investor, and that's just mm. that's that's what we're all about.
1: Mm-hmm. That's cool. So, all right. So, with the handful of minutes we have left here, are you ready to go into rapid-fire questions? Let's do it. All right. Cool. So, I can tell already you're a well-read guy. So, let's just start there. Favorite, and I'm going to exclude the book you've already given, Okay. favorite book as far as business that you've ever read and why? Secondary question on there. I'll give you a chance to think. Okay. Is there a most gifted book that you've read? And why
0: I'm going to have to give both to um, I hope I'm stating the title correctly, but it's the it's the I call it the blue ocean book. Okay. Yeah, which, which really helped me think and learn about competition. You know, blue that was Blue Ocean Strategy. Blue Ocean Strategy. Yep. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I mean, just a, a great book to think about competition, and 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 how to think about that because you don't want to be swimming in a red ocean of bloody competition. You want to figure out how you can be a blue ocean company and 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 and, and sail into a bunch of free opportunity uh, to serve customers. And I, you know, if you look at what we've done with uh, with Riskalyze. Um, we've we've executed a blue ocean kind of of, of strategy there.
1: Mm-hmm. Cool. I'm really tempted to try a new question out on you for the first time. Give it a shot. Okay, let's do it. Um, because now was Riskalyze originally your idea? The concept of, of- oh, I, I don't want to take I don't want to take full individual credit for that. A uh,
0: couple of different people.
1: Okay. So because of the fact that you've got this very cool. Concept around how you look at risk. I'm curious, what is the first memory of money that you ever remember?
0: Ooh, first memory of money. That's a great question. Um, uh, It was. It was probably uh, when I first asked my dad how much money he made, and he laughingly said, "That's not something kids need to worry about." Um, You know, somewhere, somewhere along those lines. Um, But. but you know, I, I was I also I, I it's a little bit later, and it certainly wasn't the first memory of money. But I still remember when my dad gave me five thousand dollars to 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 try investing, you know. So it, I, I I should say he loaned me five thousand dollars. The idea was I was going to give it back to him with some return, right? Um, but uh, it was nineteen ninety nine, and I. Oh. And I in this brilliant strategy of buying technology stocks, holding them for a little while and then selling them. And it was a brilliant strategy and I actually um, got busy, you know, school was starting again and all these kinds of things. And I got busy before the market crash happened. So I was a brilliant investor in 1999, had, had you know, if I'd have had risk Riskalyze then, I never would have done any of the things that I did, but it just sort of worked out by random luck.
1: So there, there's definitely some seeds in that memory to where you are today.
0: There you go. Absolutely. That's cool. Yeah.
1: All right. So just a couple more here. Uh, when you hear the word success, who's the first person you think of and why?
0: You know, probably my dad. Um, my, my, my dad um, was, and, and my dad's not like fantastically wealthy or anything like that, but he was wildly successful in overcoming his personal challenges. Um, He was an orphan. Um, He was raised by family. Um, He broke Mm -hmm. that cycle. And um, I'm the oldest of six kids. And he uh, was an amazing, amazing dad for all of us. Um, and taught me everything I know about business I had the opportunity to go to work for him in the afternoons after school starting when I was 12 years old and um, it was like an MBA course after MBA course after MBA course of, of learning uh, stuff from him and um, so I, I definitely have to say
1: my dad. That's cool I should ask you that at the beginning <laughs> so huh. so your dad essentially gave you your first job is that? Yeah.
0: Absolutely, and definitely, my love for business. And and, you know, he he built a company from scratch. Ended up selling it to a larger competitor, Um, and uh, you know, I I I got to help negotiate that deal in 2002 when I was about 20 24 years old. Uh, And so, you know, it it, it was just a fascinating experience to get to work for him uh, for those for those 12 years.
1: Very high level of trust your dad's given you there at 24.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Cool. All right, so let's go ahead and we'll wrap with this question. Um, so, what's one piece of advice that you can give everyone on the call here today that's led to your success?
0: Hmm. Well, I, I, you know, it takes me back to our core values as a company, um, and and I our, our first value as a company is delight. We believe in doing whatever it takes to engineer. Um, uh, delighting our customers into our product and into every interaction that we have with them. And the reason why delight is so powerful is because it's actually the antithesis of something that most people think is true, which is that the customer is always right. Mm-hmm. Like we believe that the customer is not always right. I think Henry Ford said it best when he said, If I'd asked people, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have told me a faster horse. Right, and so you know, our belief is if we just said yes to every single thing our advisors ask us to do, um, pretty quickly they would come back and say, "Hey, this product is a mess. Like, there's so many knobs and switches. I have no idea how to use this. It's useless. I, I, I'm done with this." Um, our, our success has come from listening really carefully to what our customers are interested in, um, trying to understand their interests, and then try to engineer a solution that really delights them um, and, and, and really goes way beyond what they might ever expect from simply doing what they told us to do. Um, I, I, I really think that approaching innovation uh, and, and approaching how you work with customers um, I, with delight rather than the customer is always right has been the key uh, to why we're where we are at today.
1: I like that. Well, Aaron, I just want to say from from my side here in Topeka, Kansas, thank you so much for clearing off an hour here to share with our viewers and listeners. Uh, it's been a pleasure. My and pleasure. So, uh, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brad. All right, Aaron. Take care. Thanks. Hey guys, this is Brad again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, seven technology hacks that financial professionals can use to reclaim unproductive hours every day. This is a free tool I'm gifting you on my website, bradleyjohnson.com. It's available right on the homepage and includes seven tools, apps, or other technology hacks I've uncovered in the last decade or so of consulting the top financial practices in the country to allow you to put hours back on your calendar. There's only one way to get it. Subscribe to my free updates and it's delivered to your inbox as soon as you do once again it's available at bradleyjohnson.com b-r-a-d-l-e-y-j-o-h-n-s-o-n dot my gift to you for checking out the podcast number two if you've listened to a few of my shows now and enjoy it i'd appreciate you heading out to itunes or stitcher to rate the podcast and just let me know what you think if you have ideas for future guests please share them there as well